When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Once you get past these shells, it was not hard for the blood to see themselves in the Crips story. It was not hard for this Latino gang member to see themselves in a, in a black gang member's story. It was, or, or an Aryan Brotherhood member's story. They're the same stories. They're the same wounds, you know. Welcome to I'm No Hero, the podcast where we celebrate the brave and the bold and the selfless, the compassionate and the courageous, those who make the world a better place and where we have a good time doing it. I'm your cowardly host, Justin Heinberg. The voice you just heard at the top of the show is the voice of Chris Henriksen, uh, my guest this episode, and, and this one's personal for me, and you'll find out why in a minute. Chris runs an organization called Street Poets, Inc., and Street Poets conducts writing workshops at schools and juvenile probation camps throughout Los Angeles County. Uh, Chris has been doing this for nearly 30 years, during which time he has grown the organization. It now serves 1,000 youth annually, largely at-risk youth. But the origin of Street Poets is far more humble. It began with just Chris going into a juvenile detention center and conducting a poetry workshop. He'd get eight to 10 guys from, you know, age 13 to 18. And these are rival gang members, by the way. These are Bloods, Crips, Aryan Brotherhood sitting side by side. Uh, And he discovered and developed a method where using poetry, he could create a safe space, which allowed these kids to break down their gangster shells and reveal their authentic selves, define their voices. and, And this fostered healing and the possibility of personal transformation. And now here's why this is personal. Um, I worked with Chris. I was employee number two. For whatever reason, he brought me on and trusted me to run a workshop, even though, you know, I mean, you might think that I have this hard hip hop vibe, but actually, no, surprisingly not. I like the suburbs. I like grass medians and, and, and trees. But I was young. I was foolish. This was more than 20 years ago. And I didn't go in there brave and I didn't go in there wise or even competent. And frankly, I needed a job. But Chris took a chance on me and and I took a chance on the gig. You'll get a sense of what these kids are really going through and uh, how the work can be so heartbreaking. And some of these stories are heartbreaking, but also at times hilarious including the time I stood between two rival gang members, one of whom was armed, unbeknownst to me, 
and I uh, tried to de-escalate the conflict with um, a very commanding, come on, guys, let's just knock it off, to varying degrees of success. So I don't write poetry. I hadn't written any poetry. I was a comedy writer. I'm a comedy writer. I write things like, would you rather watch a porno movie with your parents or watch a porno movie starring your parents? It was a joke I wrote shortly before joining the organization. I guess he thought that was an impressive writing sample, Um, but not poetry. That was completely foreign to me. And in fact, I was studying abroad in London. I had a poetry class and I was supposed to write an original poem. And I submitted the lyrics to the Jefferson's theme song because I figured in England they wouldn't know what that was. Uh, and they didn't. And I think I got an A and I was moving on up. But in the end, none of that mattered because it wasn't about being a great poet. It was about something deeper. Uh, and while Chris displayed heroism in all kinds of ways during his career, what's most striking is the bravery that the kids displayed in facing their traumas and naming their pain and trying to make change in their life. And you're going to hear some poems that demonstrate this. Um, and, and talking to Chris, you know, the word that comes to mind is wisdom. And, and that's rare. And I mean it. He's put in the time and the work where wisdom is well-earned and he's learned a thing or two. And I certainly did from him. And as always, if you know someone you think is a hero and that I should talk to, drop me an email at noheropod at gmail.com. That's noheropod at gmail.com. All right, let's get into it. My name is Chris Henriksen, and I'm no hero. So the thing with this one is I have firsthand experience watching what you do. I know what you do. And I did it with you. So the jig is up on me because I paint myself as a cowardly neurotic, which is true. But I had this little internship and something a little more, something a little braver than uh, writing fart joke books a little bit. Both are brave. So tell us the organization you work for and kind of what it is just generally. And then we'll get into how you got into it and even how I got into it and all kinds of things. So Street Poets Incorporated or Street Poets Inc. INC is a nonprofit arts education organization that harnesses the healing power of poetry and music to inspire our next generation to write, rap, and dream a new world into being for us all. That's our one-liner. Is it? It's changed. (laughs) It's evolved evolved over the years. I know. What was, do you remember the old mission statement by by heart? Uh, did we have a mission statement? Yeah, <laughs> because I used it as a pickup oh, line. You know, I don't know, man. Uh, I would use it. It was like to inspire youth in the Los Angeles area to find their voices and to use their newfound discoveries to support them as they transform their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the way that the mission has evolved probably over the past twenty five years is is that it's gotten broader, and our work is still all about inspiring young people to access their voice, to develop their voice, their authentic voice, and to activate the dreamer in them so that they can begin to manifest some of the things that they want for themselves in, in, in their life. Right. But just to make clear the population that you're talking about in terms of the youth, I mean, I say, I always say yeah. part of it was gang intervention. These are kids from South Central LA, I mean, Compton, yeah, yeah. wherever. And I don't know if the heart of it still is this, but certainly one of the key components are the workshops and the juvenile detention centers. That's often where you, know, you first encounter these kids. Street Poets began in a Los Angeles County probation camp, Camp Fred Miller. You and I know, but people just hearing this don't really know exactly, one, what the camps were like, the juvenile detention camps, because it's not like camp-like 
capture the flag camp. I can describe Camp Fred Miller in 1995, which which is a which was a kind of military boot camp. And so it was it was a very regimented environment. There wasn't a lot of freedom of self-expression, let's just say that within those facilities and every, all the young people, there were like a hundred boys sleeping in bunk beds, almost like a, you know, like a bunkhouse in a, in a military base or something. And then what, what we would do is go up and kind of commandeer the staff lounge where there was a table that we could sit around and grab about eight to 10 guys and, and invite them into that space to, to talk and to write. And really all that I was offering at that time was the practice of poetry and writing poetry as a tool for beginning to tell one's own story. So first of all, Camp Miller, because I think you took me up there to kind of show me how it's done. You wind through $20 million homes, first of all. It's so weird because they, so they take these kids, right, from the temporary jail, for what that's called, drive through Malibu, these $20 million homes, and then you get to this juvenile detention center. I would say like LA has like an ironic urban planning because I remember seeing an Alcoholics Anonymous next to a liquor store. And then my camp, which was called Camp Holton, I went up there and I hear gunshots. And this is in the middle of nowhere too. I don't know. It's past Van Nuys and, and whatever. And I hear gunshots. I'm like, what the fuck? It was a shooting range next door to the camp. And I remember one of the kids goes, you know, I love hearing those gunshots at night because it makes me feel like I'm back in my neighborhood and, it, and I can sleep easier. They literally said that. And just, I want to give a sense of how the workshop worked generally, which was everybody was to write a poem before the class. Each person would read a poem. People would say, I think you, we conducted our classes sort of individually, but someone would say, I liked the part where you said this, or I relate to you said this. And then someone else would read the poem. And that, that was the format. And then as a good class, you know, people would just start talking about themselves. And as you said, be very open it doesn't always start that way. And yet, do you have with you, and we can always put it in or even talk about it, the way a kid might come in with a protective shell, a shell they needed yeah. and a front they needed in a way to survive on the streets sometimes, but yeah. blocking their, their way to healing. Do you have something or? Yes. Yes, okay. I do. I, yeah. I have so many, I have so many examples. Of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but let me, let me share one that's pretty extreme because it's a good illustration. And I can actually also give you a sense of what, what happens when they get past that shell too. So sort of what the process is. So this was when we first, this was someone who came into the class for the first time was invited to write like everyone is, we have some writing prompt or something and everyone started writing and he wasn't writing anything. He just sort of put his head down on his desk and just was like struggling to write. And he said, and I asked him, well, you know, if he needed help or, if, you know, what I could do to kind of get his, get him into the flow. And he said, whenever I start to write, I hear this voice in my head that starts talking and I, I can't, I can't write. And I'm like, why don't you write that voice then? You know, obviously there's something in you that wants to be heard first. And so let's just start there, you know, see, see what comes up. And so this is the poem that, that he, he wrote in response to that. And what happened was as soon as I gave him that permission, basically he wrote, it was like, he wrote page after page after page. So feel free to cut this at any point, but I'll just read the whole thing just so you have a full sense of, of what, what it sounds like. Look into my eyes. If you want to see evil, no need to lie, dog. I'm feared by my own people. A motherfucking weapon. I'm lethal. 
be honest, Tommy, you feed off my evil, just like I feed off your feeble mind, busting lines. Oh, let's get more than a dime. I'm the reason you're fucked in the head and death sounds like a cozy bed. Fuck bread. I feed off you. Sometimes don't you feel like a kook? Go ahead. Keep chasing loot. You can't find love. You just toot and boot. Me, I'm looking for an excuse to shoot. Remember all the stress and pain, bloody knives and broken ties driving you insane in that empty space? Yeah, I'm that evil you can never replace. I regulate what you hate. You can't get rid of me. I created the roller. Now you're rolling with me. I made you who you never thought you'd be. You try to front like you're still pure, but I'm the one who made you feel secure. I'm what made you into that knuckleheaded G. Remember that time you OD'd and fainted? Probably not, but I was awake. You were asleep, fool. Ha, but I see everything you do. Face it, my boy. I'm a part of you. I'm that mask you wear, that cold ass stare that makes them other motherfuckers scared. I'm that fire in your chest with the smoke that smells like death. Just one scared breath away from making your day with a spray of bullets. All you got to do, little homie, is pull it. It's amazing. These guys have so much to say. I poured out that kid and literally it, it was probably 12 minutes. Wow. Of writing. Wow. That's as soon as we said the voice you're hearing in your head, that's trying to keep you from writing, write that voice. That's what he wrote. So is he talking about someone else or himself? I'm actually trying to follow the poem. So we were talking about that shell, you know, that protective shell that these guys build around themselves to deal with trauma. You know, that is one of the most articulate reflections or orations from one of those shells. And like a shell that has grown teeth, you know, and is being pretty freaking honest about its role in the life of this authentic young person that's buried behind that shell. So if you're up for it, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the poem that he wrote the next week after he had written, after he had kind of allowed that shell to speak, he had something else to say. And if, if it's cool with you, I'll read that. Definitely. Yeah. Here it is. This is what that shell, this is part of what that shell is protecting. And this is more the authentic voice of this young person. But you'll see that for yourself, hear that for yourself. I remember lying on your lap. You brought me into this world, mama. I wanted to give it right back. As I write on this paper, I can feel my shell begin to crack and my heart start to shatter. All the pain I've caused you is why I said it didn't matter. Born into the light, though it felt like night, the shadows became my twin chained up within myself. Thought I'd never break free. What I'm about to do ain't easy. I've tried, believe me. All my sins been buried. Facing my fears is scary. They say misery loves company. Shit, I thought we was married. Jealousy drove my father insane, all due to a name that wasn't his, but belonged to another. Took out his rage on my mother. All I could do was stutter. The homies used to call me Captain save a no one ever tried to save me, though. That's on the real. Pops holding a knife made of steel at mama's throat. Suddenly, from my slumber, I awoke. My hidden anger was provoked. Sometimes I wish I wasn't here trying to kill my memories with weed and beer. But now they're just smeared. So I'm working with these words to make my vision clear. Wow. So that's one so, week after. Huh? That's one week, man. That is one week. So once he was allowed to, without judgment, express that first poem, it was like something deeper and more authentic and heartfelt was just waiting to be shared underneath that. And to me, what you're seeing here and hearing here is like 
that's sacred work, what he's doing. He's going into those dark shadows of his own being, you know, with this pencil as a flashlight and trying to illuminate some of those. And, and that's how healing starts. And then the work of a facilitator and the other people in that circle is just to hold space for that. And as you know, when somebody speaks from that deeper place, it's like you could hear a pencil, you could hear a pen. I mean, it's so quiet and everyone else starts listening in a deeper way. So we were able to create a culture in that workshop that really prized that level of authenticity. And then the students themselves began to police each other almost, you know? (laughs) So when someone brought something in that wasn't coming from a deeper place, they just kind of, you know, it wasn't like they would disrespect them, but they just wouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. You know, It, it didn't get the same love that the deeper poems did. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a couple things I want to tell you about. I'm No Hero is a new podcast, so we're trying to spread the word and and find new listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, it would really help if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, could you please leave us a review, a nice five-star review, and give us a nice comment. You know, we would love to hear your feedback and, and anything nice you have to say. These reviews play a big part in what Apple and other companies decide to feature to new listeners. And I'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about a previous episode or you want to suggest a hero for me to talk to, write me an email or send an audio memo to knowheropod at gmail.com. And if you send some audio, we might just play it on the show. All right, now let's get back to the interview. Just to describe, I'm going to just give a picture of what the room is. So you have eight to 10 guys. Some are bloods, some are crips. These are enemies. These are guys who on the outs would potentially be shooting at each other. Did the the fact that you had these, you know, bloods and crips, like, did that occur to you early on or did it immediately not matter? Like they were individuals to you when you got a lot of what I did when I first came in there was just instinctive. So, and it was really about like coming in as non judgmentally as I could from as loving a place as I could. And just the practice of like listening with your heart. And what I found was that when you do that, people generally meet you there. It's almost like they, they kind of settle into whatever, whatever depth you set in the room as a facilitator and whatever quality of presence you bring generally the people around you respond to that. Once you get past these shells, it was not hard for the blood to see themselves in the Crips story. It was not hard for this Latino gang member to see themselves in a, in a black gang member's story. It was, or, or an Aryan brotherhood's member story. They're the same stories. They're the same wounds. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a quote from Henry Wynn is basically like, it's about how we connect to each other through our wounds. You know, that community is the fruit born from shared brokenness, I believe. is. The I quote. think you had that plastered in the office at some point. I remember you told me, yeah, because we had no, let's just be clear. We're not social workers. We didn't have shit for training. And so you're just thrown into the fire. You threw me into the fire. But you told me ears and heart, ears and heart, ears and heart. I remember yeah. that. So when you got in there the first time, did you know what you were doing and were you scared and like what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. I was scared. I mean, I was, I was scared in the way that like, you know, I, something in me just was like called to it. So I don't know. It's like the fear that, you know, I think the root of the word fear is actually fair F A R E, which means the way, which is an kind of interesting linguistic thing, but it was the kind of fear where you're drawn toward it, where, you know, you're meant to go there. And so, yeah, I was scared. Yeah. I was nervous. 
what I, all I knew was that writing had, how important writing had been to me as a young person and particularly as a teenager. And so when I went up there for the first time and saw these young men, I just recognized myself in them. You know, we had all on some level betrayed ourselves at that point. I had sold myself out to the Hollywood studio system. They had sold themselves out largely to gangs and in other ways that that were not really authentic to who they were. So we kind of, it was really a practice of remembering ourselves. And what I found was that it was a relief for me to be in a space where I could, where that was invited in. I mean, I needed that as much as they did. It was a hell of a lot more inviting as you, as you mentioned, than a, you know, studio development meeting, for example, um, where people are not being all that real either. I remember. So when I got out there, such the same story about Hollywood, just was, was just getting acquainted to getting my ass kicked and not understanding why people wouldn't call you back. And the use of the word avails to shorten available times, which is absurd to this day. And I say labels when I come back. So I met you and I was actually asking you because you went to AFI and you had some script success. And I was asking you about screenwriting stuff because we had the alumni, the college alumni thing. So hooked up to you. And I you started talking about DreamYard, it was called at the time before Street Poets and what you did. And I think you saw I spark to it and you could see kind of, I could feel something interesting in that. And then you took me to breakfast to sort of vet me to potentially join you in kind of creating actually the office and the full kind of organization of it. And you brought a guy named his pen name or what it was Johnny Tremaine, former gang member. And he was shot. How I forget how many times, seven, how many times? In his entire life, he's been, yeah, he had been seven bullets. Had, had, yes. And one, the last time he had been shot five times at point blank range and, you know, left to die in the street and flatlined in surgery. So he, he'd been through, needless to say, some very real physical and emotional trauma around the gang stuff. Did you bring him there to kind of make sure that, you know, what his vibe was with me and what he felt with me? Yeah, man. For, for hell yeah. And vice versa, you know, yeah. but at that time, those guys were, I trusted their instincts more than just about anybody. And I, I, I had a good feeling about you primarily because, you know, your sense of humor, I felt your heart. And I also felt this, you had a real gift of like this self-deprecating humor that was just awesome. And I knew that would be effective with these, with these young people. Cause they, you know, they respond to that and you come in, you come in with that kind of humility. That's the key. If you come in thinking, you know, you have the answers and you're trying to give back or whatever it is that some people, yeah. you know, savior, savior, when they do charity work, yeah. then that's going to lead to problems. But you, you came in from a place from a, a humble place. And if you look at the root of the word humble, it's hummus, which is means the earth. So to be humble is to be close to the earth. And you, there was a groundedness about you that I really responded to. And I just wanted to see how what the how, fuck would happen. You know, the homie, the homie Johnny would respond to you in that moment. Yeah, I didn't know I was, he was like looking away from his eggs. I'm like, shit, man, what's this guy going to, you know, what's my story? You know, like I, I broke my toe once. It's interesting, right? A half Jewish like guy who grew up on Mel Brooks and and stuff. And like the fact that I would not have thought that my comedy would translate to gang youth, to at-risk youth, to younger guys, people from the hood. I, I didn't. And it totally did. I remember one person saying it was the third funniest white dude he knew behind uh, Jim Carrey, Martin Short. And, and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he got the list. 
One thing was easier for me though. Like I was young enough to have like a brotherly relationship and you were just a little bit older than me, but just enough for them to resent you as a father figure. Right. (laughs) I I think so. Right. Like, I I don't know, man. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I I mean, I, I definitely got more, more father projection than, than you did. You know, and when I started doing work, I was more like like you. I was more like a, a a brother, an older brother. But yeah, you're you're right, and and you can imagine now I'm almost I'm probably their grandparents. So now they guy. like you again. Maybe, <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe you're I'm just like the nice older guy that they tolerate and listen to with me spout wisdom every once in a while. So. Yeah, and you know, there's so many. You know, this podcast explores bravery. It's it's really about telling stories. But somewhere along the line, I'm trying to piece together what's brave, and there's different parts of your story and, and more so the youth we worked with who became men over time because we had long relationships with them, especially you and the bravery. And, and the first step, one of the key aspects of bravery was this being brave enough to be vulnerable. And we were way ahead of Benet Brown with that shit, by the way. <laughs> that was the bravery because those kids were used to thinking of bravery or courage as joining a gang, being the OG, being the badass shooting at people, whatever they thought. And and that was actually all out of a place of fear and sometimes mm-hmm. necessary fear. Like they had to survive mm-hmm. on the streets. They didn't have families they needed, but often not. Often they just were in a group who was angry at another group because they happened to be born two blocks over. And the bravery, obviously, to confront all their truth and their demons and to expose those to, to begin the healing. And then what happens? So when you get an opening like that with a kid, how do you keep that healing process and then have them try to do something with that to actually make choices and transform their lives? Healing is not linear. For example, like this guy that I just shared those poems, I don't know what his poem was the following week, but I guarantee you it was not, it it probably might've even swung back. The pendulum might've swung back in some way. And so when someone goes deep, it's like they need the relief of being able to kind of not is it's hard to maintain that level of depth and especially that depth in painful places. So it's actually it's a good instinct to want to come back to the surface again, maybe get a little more superficial and then maybe then you go a little deeper the next time or whatever, whatever your process is. And what the main thing that we started to realize is these guys were doing this really deep, soulful work, and then they were getting released back into the community. There was no place for them to go. And there was really no, they didn't have people in their lives. Even you know, Occasionally, somebody would have a homeboy that they really got real with and that they were genuinely tight with. But generally speaking, they did not have people in their lives that they could talk to about these things, especially if they'd, they'd had trauma in their own families. And it, most of those families might have even taboos around talking about stuff at all. So I, I started to realize like, okay, we, we needed to create some safe space out in the community besides that wasn't just my, the back deck of my house, which is what operated as our headquarters for the first few years. And, yeah. and so we eventually created a, a space. We found a space, rented an office in downtown LA on this rooftop that was kind of a miraculous little find. It really at was. At a time when you know downtown LA had not been massively gentrified. And we were able to afford to have this like bunker on the top of this industrial office building that had a 360 degree view of Los Angeles, the downtown skyline all through South LA. It was, ama- it was an amazing perch to work from. That became uh, kind of our little safe haven for for guys. That was it was kind of in a gang neutral area. You know, they felt safe up off the a few stories up off the street, and that's where we started to kind of unpack some of the practical challenges that they were facing in their lives. And I got a little bit into. 
I took a dip, I would say like a five-year, maybe five to seven-year dive into Mr. Fix-It land, you know, where you start to like, okay, how can I... This guy's doing all this deep, soulful work. How can I help them take steps, practical steps that are going to move them in the direction of stability in their lives? And, you know, that had its own challenges. <laughs> so everything from like helping them find a job to helping them that suddenly they have a job, but they can't get to their job. So then they need a donated car. So how do you find that? How do you find them a place to stay when they've been kicked out of their home or their family's been evicted or, you know, so all of this stuff, I started to get a real education in just the in, in enormous inequities in our society, working with these guys and realizing like, man, this is right. the, the mountain they have to climb to get out of these holes that, into which they were born. And they may have dug some of that, those holes themselves, but man, you know, most, most of them are starting 10 feet deep and are having to claw their way out. You know, you, you um, seem to almost speak of those five to seven years as a mistake. But it sounds like you were trying to do good work. And I don't know if you still, you still, I think, try to yeah, help these people. Yeah, no, it, I, it's not that I see it as a mistake because it was coming from a place of love, mostly. What I started to become aware of, and this is getting, this is maybe closer to 10 years into the work, was that there were times where I would help somebody and it was coming from a place of fear in me. Like where I felt like, oh, if I don't do this, what might happen? What will happen? If I don't help him in this way, what's going to happen in his life? You know? So I had to learn to discern within myself, okay, is this coming from a place of love or is this coming from a place of fear where I'm trying to like help this person juggle what's sort of an unsustainable situation when in fact, maybe they need to fall on their face. And even if that fall might kill them, if they're ever going to, they get out of that hole for real, they might need to go down before they can go up. So and that was a really hard yeah. thing to to navigate, especially when you love someone, you don't want them to have to go through these painful experiences. And so I had to learn, you know, the, the, I was like, I call it the Mr. Fix it in me, but I had to kind of learn the limitations of my Mr. Fix it, which isn't to say I stopped occasionally intervening when it felt right and came from a place of love in me. But I did start to realize like, okay, I'm going to need other tools and other ways of supporting these young people that, that is not so much about patching holes in a, in a leaky boat that is continuing to spring leaks. Well, let me ask you this. How many people that you've worked with have died, have been shot or met a bad end due to their lifestyle, if you had to guess. Oh man, that's such a heavy question, Justin. I will say this, the sort of death of the Mr. Fix-It in me. And when I say the Mr. Fix-It, what I'm talking about is like the fear-based part of me that felt like it's, like, uh, it's on me somehow to, to save this person or to create or to find the resources to help them navigate this situation. The death of the Mr. Fix-It in me happened in the wake of an actual death of one of my mentees. Eric Henderson, I can, who was shot and killed on his 19th birthday in just totally tragic circumstances, gang related, but he was no longer gang affiliated. And it just was a horrible tragedy. In the wake of that, I just kind of came apart. Like the part where I, I guess I would say the Mr. Fix It in me came apart. And I was lucky enough to get invited up to this men's retreat in Mendocino in the Redwoods 
which was an environment where I could come apart as gracefully as, you know, where it was okay to come apart and where I wasn't the only one coming apart. And some part of me really died up there. It was kind of ritually, more than kind of, actually ritually buried at the base of a redwood tree in, in Mendocino. And I came back from that experience in a very different place in my, in my life and journey and, in, and with a different perspective on the work and kind of realigned within myself. So I felt a much more able to engage and see through some of the traps that I'd fallen into in my first 10 years of doing the work. Was the change you're talking about releasing outcome and making it more about process, yeah, even though it was always about yeah. process? I mean, what, because you couldn't yeah, control... Part of it was just having a broader vision and understanding like, you know what, there's like you cannot control the outcome of these situations in these young people's lives. All you can do is love them as, as best, as wholly as you can and continue to do your best to see the authentic self in them, the gifts in them, the beauty in them as it reveal itself and, and reflect that back to them through your presence. I guess it was partly just realizing like that in and of itself is incredibly powerful. It's more important than any patch you can patch in a, in a leaky boat. You know, it's more important than replacing someone's flat tire. And yet those, those practical things can become your entire yeah. life if you get hung up on them. So part of it was just having this deeper vision and having it kind of blown, blown out in a way that was, yeah. I'm trying to remember Eric's funeral. Was there something that happened there where the OGs were like, was yes. That, what yes. happened? Yeah. So I was pretty despairing at that point. And, you know, it was actually the funeral. There was, it was a huge funeral, there were like 300 people there, all races. I mean, he, the tragic thing was he had been, he had been shot by this predominantly Latino gang and he looked black. He, he had a big Afro and, but his mother was actually Mexican American and he spoke Spanish and he was a bridge builder, even when he was locked up in camp. There weren't any fights in camp while he was there because he would just kind of connect the brown and black kids. And he was a bridge builder. He was a peacemaker by nature. He had this huge heart. His mother called him Sugar Bear. That was like his nickname in his family. I mean, mm. and that was an appropriate nickname for him. So, yes. And his funeral was just freaking tragic. And it was people weeping. I mean, I've never seen so many young people in tears. I was, we, I, we were, it was heavy, super heavy. His best friend who had been present when he was shot could barely stand at the podium, wanted to speak and was being held up by others. I mean, it was really intense. And in the midst of that, this older member of his, you know, crew from, from that he had kind of grown, gotten sucked into in his early teen years that he had really grown, grown beyond, but was still connected to in some way got up and he had this older guy, he was probably in his, I don't know, late thirties or something. And he had shown up with a bunch of young little homeboys. Uh, like they were all sitting together in the church. And this guy had just this really dark kind of reptilian energy, man. I mean, I don't know how to describe it other than that, but he got up on the mic during the service and, you know, he said a few things, but one of the things he claimed, he said was like, you know, Eric was ours. He kind of claimed him mm. in a way that was not an accurate representation of actually where Eric was at that time. And you could kind of feel this older guy trying to reestablish control over these young homies that he had brought with him. And he said something like, if Eric, if Eric was here right now, he'd be on the corner with us kicking it and 
he had a whole kind of spiel that he did. And it just was like really creepy. It sent chills down my spine and the pre and the preachers in the room too. There were, it was, this was in a church took that and went like they, they felt, you know, the Holy spirit got into them and they went out, they kind of went after the energy that he brought into the space. Cause it was a dark kind of claiming of Eric that was, that was unsettling. And, but for me, I remember standing out on the street corner after the service and seeing him taking photographs with all these youngsters and they're all throwing up gang signs. And, and I just remember thinking like, I can't walk away from this work. This makes me think about how the work started to extend into the community. And in the early incarnations, when I still was there were open mics where anybody could come, not just alumni of the workshops and mm-hmm. recite poems or speak freely. I remember one time Trey just got up there and here was a guy who was had some challenges, learning challenges and communication challenges. And except with professional wrestling, he became like a savant. In fact, that's how I bonded with him is we all of a sudden he became completely lucid and insightful on the, the subject of pro wrestling, which of course was one of my interests because I'm eyebrow, but got Can up I ask there. you a question about yeah. Trey? Yeah. He was a youngster. He was a real youngster when you connected with him right. and he was in middle school. Right. That was a school program. Not was his a, was he about the age? When, how old were you when your dad passed? Yeah, it was the same 12. He was 12. Yeah. There was something really deep going on there that when you guys connected, that felt like that, like it was almost like he connected to the, 12 year old boy and you and wrestling, you know, that you, you yeah. just, I don't know. It was some, it felt mutually healing that relationship. And it's a really good example of like how mentoring we, we each heal each other, you know, and there was something kind of beautiful to witness in yeah. that relationship. I'm like, I'm like misting up right now, man. I hadn't thought about it that way. And we still are in touch. He just sent me a note on Facebook. Hey, uncle Justy hit me, mm-hmm. hit me up. Oh, anyway, I was going to say, yeah, there was a touching moment where he just suddenly started thanking everybody. And it was just this sincere, honest way. And I felt good. I think you might probably felt good. And the feedback of where you feel good in a job like this isn't obvious sometimes. Like we all want to be like, he turned his life around and went to Harvard. And it's not that, man. It's a victory, a small victory every day. Right? Someone lightens their heaviness by confessing a time they were molested. And that's a good day. And speaking of which, I, you want to talk about earning trust for someone. One of the things that I was struck by, I'm digressing all over the place now, but there's just so much here. I'm talking to you like, mm. like an old army friend, which is a disservice to the army. But if I don't know about that. actually. Yeah, no. yeah I, I do. I mean, when I talk to you, there's a relationship with you and Allison who worked with us that is different from any other friends I have you know, having gone through this work with you. If I come away from one thing and they said, what did you learn? I mean, there's all kinds of spiritual things you learn or whatever. Although we'll get to that too, because spiritual is not a word I use much. You probably use, I I describe myself as not religious, but spiritual even less. But (laughs) the sad thing I learned, I feel like was almost every violent criminal, violent person was sexually molested is insane. Mm-hmm. Like, and you wouldn't know that until you earn the trust for years. Sometimes they would tell yeah. you how they shot at somebody within three weeks. Sometimes it was true. Sometimes it wasn't. They were willing to talk about things that were shameful. And, but the shame of having been abused, I remember someone writing a poem. We went to Starbucks 
the, the ubiquitous Starbucks, buy one of the camps. And I fell asleep. I was tired and woke up and he wrote a poem about having been molested as a kid. And that changed. You want to talk kind of like a similar poem that the, yeah, the guy you're talking, it changed you're his... So- your podcast just became really not funny. <laughs> I know. It's, if that's so, the yeah, idea. You're taking it's, us into the anti-humor territory now. There's a lot wanna, of that too. It's the pendulum. I like you that and acknowledge it and yeah. also say that what you're bringing up is extremely important. You know, one of the things that we discovered in this work is that there is this epidemic of, of sexual abuse in our culture and that absolutely, especially when you're dealing with people who have fallen into the gang life and are acting out in, in ways, a shockingly high percentage of them have been sexually abused as young people. And what we found is that it's, it's a very rare teenager that is ready to talk about that. Because at that stage, when you're in your 16, 17, 18, you know, you're still trying to figure out your own sexual identity and who you are in the world and what it is to be a man and all of these things that it makes it almost impossible to kind of bring that those kinds of experiences into the space. And so what we were finding is that with people that we stayed connected to into into young adulthood, as they got into their 20s, they started to put some of these practices into, you know, their writing practice into started to harness that practice to go even deeper and to find, and, and what we found is that those, those wounds around sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse were often among the deepest and most deeply buried. And also the most transformational when, when they were able to bring light into those places and to share that with others. And so that's been almost like a universal wound among many of our, especially former gang members who are a part of our community now and adults. And I think the key is staying in relationship with people long enough so that they can, they can at their own pace in their own way, use the practice that we offer, which is this practice of writing and deep soul searching and storytelling in that way to illuminate whatever they're ready to illuminate in their own lives and to give voice to those things. The good news I can say is that as a culture, our culture has shifted radically in terms of especially male sexual abuse is much more talked about, is much less of a shameful thing than it was. There are many more sort of celebrities and folks coming out about experiences they had as as children from like, you know, professional boxers to athletes to people that the hopeful thing to say here is that I think it's, it's easier now, never easy, but it's easier now than it was 25 years ago for a young man to acknowledge a wound like that. Yeah, it's crazy and and how that I'm glad you ended that a hopeful thing will swing the pendulum back. There's so many stories. Gosh, there's just so many things. I talked about like accidental bravery on my part cuz purposeful bravery is is less a part of me, but although like the way you describe being drawn by that fear to do this it is so on the money for me too. Something, mm-hmm. you know, was so disconnected from purpose in my life when when you and I met, but I remember some times that I didn't know exactly the situation I was in until after the fact. And you have way more situations where you were out in the streets or connected to these guys in a way where I don't know if you were in danger. Sometimes you might have been for me. I'll tell you a few stories and then I want to hear yours. Some were shared from you and you. One was one time 
<laughs> a lot of times it was the guys we were trying to staff, right? So like the street poets or some of the guys who were further along the journey past the workshops, we were trying to get them to be a part of the organization as facilitators or even experimented them with staff positions, which was its own crazy story often. And one of the times was a couple guys, I don't know if they were all working with us or volunteering or whatever, but there was some event outside where there was some sort of disagreement and, and sides of an argument were formed and they came in screaming at each other. And I got in the middle of it, basically yeah, gave maybe. the white guy, knock it off, everybody. You know, like, come on, guys. Which is exactly what's needed in that situation, by the way. Yeah. It's, would it's, I, it's a, well, funny white, a funny white guy to jump into the middle and just disarm but, people. But I humor. wasn't trying to be funny. It just turned out funny then. And what I found out was one of them had a gun in their waistband and was kind of reaching toward it. And we just separated them and I think drove them to opposite ends of the city, if I remember. Like, what you said, one, mm-hmm. you take him, you take him. And that was one instance of accidental bravery. Another, I remember driving somebody and then finding they had a you know hit on them. And I bet you you did that many a time where you. I know guys slept in your house when people were coming after them. Yeah. You know, so were there situations where you were in danger that you remember? I don't. You know, look, man. One of the things we both share is a healthy degree of naivete. It's what allowed us probably to get into this work. You know, and, and I and I think an open heart. It, a little bit of naivete is it kind of goes hand in hand they, they they to some degree i would also say there's a kind of faith you know i'm not a i'm not a religious person but i i do have a very strong i do feel a very strong connection to source you know and to spirit and in in my own life whatever however that's a that's another podcast but i would say that like i always felt protected and it's again it might have been a naive feeling but it was even when i was you know going through the projects to meet a kid or pick it up if i if i was going there to do good and i was kind of coming from a good place i felt i always felt like i i was protected i always felt like i could navigate those those places um and be okay now, of course, there were multiple times where there were close calls. And, you know, I remember pulling up to pick up one kid who, who had just had a, like literally probably 30 seconds before I pulled up to pick him up to go to lunch. A car had driven by and shot the 40 ounce liquor bottle out of his hand uh, while he was waiting <laughs> 30 seconds <laughs> and, before you showed up Jesus. yeah you know and like and there was this kind of crazy energy i'm like what's going on and i could feel the energy you know i could feel how disturbed everyone was people were running around a little bit and i can't remember i remember him getting eventually getting being able to corral him into the car and just be like look we're going to lunch and i remember saying to him like look you know this that's what you get for for drinking before noon man like like <laughs> like if that's not a sign from the universe that you need to stop sucking down those 40s on a regular basis then i don't know what is but that was my takeaway from it yeah. i didn't really ever stop and go oh i could have been you know i could have been there when that when those bullets got you know sprayed through the sidewalk or whatever any other I don't know, man. I don't, these are, it's kind of like when the homies get together and start talking about war stories, Mm. I I feel like there's a natural desire to want to talk about the things where your death was close by. It's a natural human desire, but it's one that I'm, I I guess I try to resist too much because I, I, and maybe it's because I've become, I've developed a more of a healthy relationship with death (laughs) and more comfort with the idea of death. And maybe as I've gotten older and wiser, but that sort of bonding through war story thing, 
I think it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I resist it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, resi- I'm resisting going any deeper on that now. So I was one of the things I thought maybe we'd do. And, and that's so interesting. To, you know, you're not a naive kid anymore. You've been doing this for a long time. And to, to come to that realization, to not want to do that. I do remember when I was going through, it's a little bit similarly, but I wanted to talk about, I have a couple of war stories down here, but yeah, um, no. I do, but I, but I remember, I, well, I will talk. I remember one time well, girl, we didn't just work with men, by the way, we had, we worked with women too. And we had a, a teacher named Allison Tatlock who worked in a school with pregnant teenagers yep, and stuff. But there was also, uh, there was a, a girl who came in who was a gang member. I don't remember how she, I don't know if she'd be comfortable me using her name either. She came into the fold. It wasn't through one of the programs, I don't think, but she had been in knife fights. She was in the gangs and she was trying to get out. And she said, oh man, one of my, my house was shot at last night. I was like, mm-hmm. oh man, where is it? And she said, Lyceum Street. And I'm like, I live on that. What the, what the fuck? That's a block. You were a block from me. He's like, yeah, I was in my grandma's house, but you know, it's not far. Cause the weird thing about LA and your take on LA, I want to get, cause I had to leave. Right. But you found some sort of way of loving it. And it's interesting. But so the street that I lived on, I was a block away from Marina Del Rey, which is ultra rich people with yachts and stuff, whatever. And then the hood, like another block away, you know, I was hood adjacent and Marina Del Rey adjacent. But I remember saying that, but then, so that wasn't dangerous for me, but it was just brought it kind of home. And I developed a pretty close relationship with her, ended up like helping her in college. And one day she baked a mm-hmm. cake and came by. And that was one of those moments that, you know, you save her and you may have gotten to a place of enlightenment where it's just not even about that. You know, it's about what you give. And, you know, it was great. The antidote to, to Hollywood where you have no power in having a good day is if somebody accepts your work or praises you and you, and you have no power over that. And I've been back in that the past four years, man, I've been trying to sell shows and I'm getting slapped. And I don't think a meeting hasn't been postponed that I've had Mm. by zoom. When we went into work, you controlled like to having a good day by how you gave or, you know, I mean, what you did and what a better way to live. And smack myself to get back into that because I've been struggling, you know, part of this podcast even is like, you know, one, I like to hear my own voice, but two, hopefully talking to people like you, I've never had a lower view of humanity than now based on kind of all the Trump stuff, the nationalism, obviously the war and sort of the autocracy. You know, I wish we could get political parties in that sacred space in those jails. I wish I could get people from other countries in that space. Because one thing I do believe, and I did believe coming out of that work was that in a room, when a space is safe, love will beat hate. And mm-hmm. I honestly believed that. And I do believe that in a room. And then if you get love out, doesn't yeah. beat hate. Love transforms hate. You know, if you imagine like a dark basement, all you got to do is light a match and it illuminates the whole place. That love, that light is transformational. And it's dangerous to think of it as like war as a kind of warfare of love versus hate or good versus evil. These are the traps that our culture and our religious traditions have fallen into. It's the fundamentalist trap. It's what keeps us stuck. So yeah, I think the language we use around that stuff is really, really important. Yeah. And I thank you for, for, for that. Transformational is a word that's been with the organization from the beginning to the end. If one thing stayed consistent with all the changes and the growth and the new elements you've added and the new you, that mm. that's been there, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and the, there's never been a bigger need. I mean, what you're identifying in our culture because of all that has been stirred from the shadows of our culture to the surface of the, you know, we love metaphor at street poets and this metaphor of a river is one that has always pervaded our work, but you know, we were living in a time where we were in the rapids of that river and those deep, the, the deep shadowy places in the river, all that muck has been stirred to the surface. And that's actually a good thing. It makes it super uncomfortable and dangerous at times <laughs> because you're seeing so much extremism and, and, you know, reactionary stuff going on. But that stuff that's been stirred to the surface is stuff that needed to be illuminated. It needed to be seen. And I keep holding on to this idea that, yes, we are in the rapids of this river. It's a river of change, constantly changing. And our culture is constantly changing. And I'm, be- I'm working on sort of visualizing once those rap- we finish shooting the rapids, you know, how things kind of open up and, and are reimagined on the other side of those rapids. And I think there's going to be a real need for bridge builders and people who can look across can build bridges and, and extend themselves and open their hearts across these, what have become widening and deepening divides in our culture, racial divides, socioeconomic divides, political divides. So I'm not asking you to be a preacher and I know you're humble about this, but if you want to communicate kind of one or a few central ideas about the work you've done and what, what you've learned to whether it's an individual or the community, kind of like what idea... It's very important for you to, to convey. I mean, when you asked the question, I, a bunch of stuff popped into my head, but then it all distilled down to one thing, which is just the importance of loving each other. And that practice of learning to listen and, and speak from our hearts begins with a beginning to love ourselves and to do that work internally, like our, our own self-knowledge, self-understanding, self-acceptance. The more we can kind of do that work ourselves, the more capable we are of accepting and loving and recognizing beauty and the flaws of others and accept being able to accept them, even as we are working to transform and turn our culture into a more loving and compassionate place. But it's a process we're all in. We're all in the rapids together and we're all learning to love more fully and wholly and love ourselves too. So yeah, I guess that's like an, an invitation. I guess. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, as spiritual as I am not, <laughs> uh, as I don't think everything happens for a reason, I think we make purpose from things ourselves. That's my take, but I was drawn back to reach out to you for, for some reason recently and hearing you say the parts of your life that you don't feel love and humility in that's not the right place to be is resonating with me as we speak very much so. And to try to reconnect to those places as best you can, if you're lucky enough to do it professionally or just in other areas of your life. I want to thank you for coming on and reminding me and reconnecting me to, to so much of what we did, but also what you're talking about, the ideas of love and humility and, and reminding me of that. And as I said, you're, you're, you've been a mentor to me. Thanks. And thanks for, for talking. I think people, the wider community needs to hear what you have to say. So metaphors be with you. And thanks, Justin. I, I just want to say to back to you, you came into my life at a time when I needed company in this work desperately. And you, I could not have asked for a better brother 
in to, to step into this work with them with a more, you know, just your heart, your humor. You asked about how we navigate some of these tragedies and some of the really sort of unjust things and st- stuff that we encounter in this work. And having somebody like you that was able to bring humor to situations that most people would not be able to find that light was incredibly incredibly healing for me. And it kept me in the work, man. I mean, uh, who knows? I, I'm not sure I could have navigated those those very early years where I was still figuring out who the hell I was and what the hell I was doing without someone like you to indoctrinate <laughs> into, yeah. you know, into my, my half-baked ideas, you know? So... <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm not done talking to you. I am for this podcast. We got to We got to talk for about... 20 more hours and uh, figure out what the hell I'm supposed to do with my life right now. So yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. right. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Appreciate you, brother. So that was Chris Henriksen. Amazing. How much energy, how much time he's devoted to kids and served as a mentor to, to so many of them and to me. And you could see the wisdom, as I said, uh, including, you know, talking about not recounting these near-death experiences as, as if they were war stories and, and being proud of them. I thought that was an interesting point. And when he corrected me, when I asserted, thinking I was being all wise myself and saying that love beats hate, um, and having him restated as love transforms hate, an important distinction. And uh, why don't we leave on that, the transformational power of love. And if ever you find yourself in the middle of a possible altercation that could be violent, just remember to say, come on, guys, and knock it off. That tends to work. If you want to learn more about Street Poets, Inc. and hear some of the amazing journeys as told by the poets and people who went through those journeys themselves, check out Street Poets Podcast. You can find it everywhere. You can also go to streetpoetsinc.com. That's streetpoetsinc.com. No play on words with I-N-K. Find Street Poets Podcast. You won't regret it. All right, so have a great week. And if hearing Chris's story inspired you, maybe try doing something loving yourself. As he said, it all came down to love. Put a little extra effort towards sincerity and that perfunctory smile you give when you pass a stranger on the sidewalk. When saying goodnight to your spouse or saying goodbye as you leave, stop saying, love you, and bring back the pronoun. Say, I love you. It means a lot more. So that's I'm No Hero for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm Justin Heimberg, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at NoHeroPod, or you can send us a note at NoHeroPod at gmail.com. I'll be back next week with another heroic interview. I'm No Hero is a Clamor audio production distributed by the Cloud 10 Network, hosted and executive produced by me, Justin Heimberg. Executive produced by Aaron Hilliard, Clamor General Manager Rich Statter, Associate Producer Ethan Aronson, Post-Production Supervised by Devin Ruskin, Production Assistant Samara Malik, Additional Production and Editing by Mark Ronick and the folks at Ironic Media, Special Thanks to Sim Sarna and Saiba Krieger at Cloud10, Follow I'm No Hero on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, it's at NoHeroPod. That's at No Hero Pod. Send us your thoughts or suggest a hero at NoHeroPod at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.